My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have a degree in international affairs, and I'm here with Walter Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand democracy through the lens of the Western bubble. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Hi, Balder. Why are we speaking about this topic today? Why are we speaking about democracy? Hello, Dario. Good to have you back, first of all. And in many ways, I think the question is, why haven't we spoken about democracy before? In the sense that we have mentioned it a lot in our episodes, but it actually took me by surprise when you pointed out two weeks ago or so that we had never done a full episode on this, which is... Interesting because democracy is such a fundamental part of the Western bubble. Uh, we have started telling ourselves that there's something inherently morally superior about being a democracy compared to any other type of governance form. Whereas in reality, democracy is a practical tool for us to achieve certain moral values. In, in itself, there's nothing inherently better about democracy than any other government's forms, uh, governance forms if it is not related to actually achieving human well-being. And just like in the episodes about nuclear proliferation, this week's topic will be divided into two parts. Today, we will talk about the facts and the bubble perspective of democracy. And next week, we will analyze the damage and the future of this topic. And what are the facts? The term democracy first appeared in ancient Greek political and philosophical thought. The word comes from demos, common people, and kratos, force or might. Democracy as a system is a form of government in which the people have the authority to deliberate and decide legislation, which is called direct democracy, or to choose governing officials to do so for them, which is called representative democracy. A republic, on the other hand, is a system of government where people can choose representatives through elections to make decisions in the public's interest. Western democratic evolution is typically described as follows, where throughout time there are a number of states that use democratic elements in its decision-making. Starting with the Athenian democracy, which took the form of a direct democracy and had two distinguishing features, the random selection of ordinary citizens to fill the few existing administrative and judicial offices, and legislative assembly consisting of all Athenian citizens. A citizen was only a man old enough for military duty. Moving on to the Roman Republic, only a minority of Romans were citizens with votes in the elections for representatives. Additionally, the votes of powerful were given more power through weighted voting. So most high officials, including members of the Senate, came from a few wealthy and noble families. Prominent examples outside the West are 6th century BC Vaishali of India, which is considered one of the first examples of a republic, and the Iroquois nation in the Americas, which also developed a form of democratic society between 1450 and 1660, well before contact with Europeans, and it still exists today as the world's oldest standing representative democracy. Back to the West, during the Middle Ages and the Italian Renaissance, absolute centralized power was questioned and political movements started changing the status quo, moving influence towards nobility and away from monarchs. This was followed by philosophical conversations about inalienable rights and the nature of political sovereignty by people such as 
Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Today, liberal democracy is the predominant model in Western societies. Liberal democracy is the culmination of a liberal political evolution that operates under a representative democratic form of government. It is characterized by elections between multiple distinct political parties, a separation of powers into different branches of government, the rule of law in everyday life as a part of an open society, a market economy with private property, and the equal protection of human rights, civil rights, civil liberties, and political freedoms for all people. Before we actually move on to the bubble discussion, um, let's discuss the fact sheet very quickly because I think it is important to differentiate between a few things and to actually talk about the original meaning um, of, of democracy and kind of the strengths of the term. So, Balder, when was democracy actually working the best when we're looking back? Like, when is it perfect? <laughs> I don't think that perfection was ever achieved, nor will it be, because it you can only answer that question in terms of how does it achieve certain moral values or certain practical effects that we want to achieve? What kind of society do we want to create? And at what moment in time did democracy work best to achieve those goals, those ambitions, right? That very practical approach leads you then to look at, for example, the 1990s in uh, Western societies, from a Western perspective at least, when there was a genuine connection between governance, policy making within this democratic system and the overall goals of Western society, which were about economic well-being. They were also about economic growth. People set economic growth as a goal, whether you agree with that or not. Um, they were about relative income equality, relative, not complete. Uh, they were about protection of minorities, they were about an increasing understanding of sustainability with, the, with respect to the environment and the planet. So in many ways, the 1990s seemed to be a moment when democracy was working very, very well. And then what happened afterwards? I mean, so at what point did it start going south? I mean, we already discussed this a little bit in our episode number three, the hollowing out of institutions. But what did Western society start to do that kind of turned democracy into more perfect uh, institutions to perfect? Well, this is really interesting. So the, actually that process of um, decay, democratic decay, probably arguably started in the 80s, but it was not visible in the 90s yet because these things take a long time, um, which was a combination of a managerial attitude towards society together with the arrival of the CNN effect, 24 hours news media, which then in the 90s led to, the in, um, led to further coverage through the internet, uh, then in the 21st century social media technology, and a huge populist push to give more power to the majority, to give more power to people, and therefore away from, if you like, the intellectual elites, that had been running democracy imperfectly in the 50s, in the 60s, 70s, culminating in the 1990s, where, yes, there were was a voting pattern. People would vote for intellectual and political elites that then would form a government for four years. And um, during those four years, they would get on with it. However, through the CNN effect, the Internet, social media, now in 2023, what you see is that in many ways, 
democracy is more perfect than ever because we are following more and more what the majority wants politicians to do, what the majority wants governments to implement. But that is a really, really bad way to achieve a happy, uh, morally just society because democracy in its perfect form leads to horrible, horrible outcomes. Mm. Very quickly, uh, for the listeners that don't know this, the CNN effect is a theory in political science, which states that media um, you know, outlets and television networks play a significant role in determining the actions of policymakers, which was first observed in the uh, Kuwait-Iraq war. But Boulder, um, I have a question for you about what you just said, um, because you said it was then, you know, really, well, democracy was working well in the 1950s and 60s and 1990s. But one could say that it was only working well for a few people, that, uh, you know, there were significant problems within society um, and people weren't as represented and that this might be going better now, that especially minorities are represented better in, in today's democratic systems. Yes, yeah, so when we're talking about the well-functioning of the political process, that is not to say that at that moment... Uh, society is already at the peak of its moral values, right? So you're absolutely right. 50s, 60s, society was institutionally racist, society was institutionally sexist. But the change that occurred was occurring because of the democratic values behind it. The idea that, hang on, we actually need to adjust for our historical patterns and historical mistakes. Historically, we've been a patriarchal, sexist, racist society, institutionally racist, especially, for example, in the United States, more so than in Western Europe. Um, and now we need to deal with that and we need to improve our society and make it better. How do we make it better? Not simply by following the rule of the majority, the rule of the masses, but by very significant intellectual political conversations about what kind of worlds we want to create so even though the 60s and 70s were definitely not perfect in terms of social justice the system was working well and led to the outcomes in the 1990s and even some of the outcomes that we still experience today of a society that is less racist less sexist than it was before so the political system of an elite following broadly the will of the people, but then being able to make their own choices, know with, with better information than your average person in the street, actually led to the significant improvements that we still enjoy today. Unfortunately, now in the 21st century, that elite, that political intellectual elite, no longer has the same clouds, the same level of influence as it did before. Populist politicians and also central center politicians are following very much this this mass pressure from society on specific issues and on broad issues and as a result the democratic process is more perfect but works worse in terms of achieving moral value institutional uh, success that we're all craving for so if i understand this correctly then an ideal way of running society nowadays would be to have the same elite intellectual conversations of the 50s and 60s. However, with the representation of minorities that we basically see today. And so, so simply having elites from all parts of society that are having an intellectual debate 
for society and that society doesn't have this debate, let's say, on social media screaming at each other. Exactly. And this is where democracy really shines. So the old white men in the 50s and 60s, and I, by the way, that's an absolutely correct description of who was running the country in Western Europe or in North America in those days. Um, those old white men didn't, out of the goodness of their heart or out of the wisdom of their uh, intellect, simply change society. They changed it because of significant pressures from below. But there was still a filter process of, hey, there is a civil rights movement. There is a feminist movement. They're putting pressure on society. They're forcing the elites to have certain conversations. Those elites then have those conversations. They're forced to adjust their policymaking, but in a structured, relatively well thought out kind of dynamic. Unlike um, the world that you see now, where political elites, the politicians, leadership, basically just follows the crowds without having a broader analysis about it, without having a genuinely well thought out conversation about what is it, what kind of world are we actually creating now? What is it that we want to achieve in the next 20, 30, 40 years? So now, because of that democratic success of the late 20th century, because of those pressures from society changing that, that patriarchal elitism, we now could have an intellectual elite that includes the minorities, that includes women, um, but that is still intellectual and serious in tone and in content. Instead, unfortunately, there is no elite that has that impact anymore. Not of white men, not of black women. That elite is no longer available as part of the democratic process because nobody listens to them. So now in the 21st century, we have this two perfect democracy, um, as we just described. And at the same time, we're seeing um, parts of society and uh, some, some Western countries and some other countries um, that you know, were liberal democratic moving away from this, this process of democratic backsliding. What does this tell us about the state of democracy? It means that people no longer understand that democracy is not simply following everything that they want to achieve. Instead, they uh, they get angry when um, certain policies don't go in their favor. As a result, they start punishing long-term policymaking and they start rewarding short-term populism. Short-term populism leads to bad policymaking. They get more upset. They got they uh, voters become more annoyed with the system, so they go to even more extremes, and as a result, that pulls sort of the traditional political stability that is required in any democratic process apart. Right, and so interestingly enough, our society right now requires some radical policymaking, but that radical policymaking has to come from a serious place. So we have we need radical policymaking when it comes to the environment, with the increasing income inequality, groups being left out of the system. But instead of understanding that that requires a intellectual conversation that then leads to a long-term vision, voters demand that change straight away from politicians who promise them gold but will only deliver mud. What is the bubble? So that now we're talking about the bubble and what's the bubble here. The way I've understood this so far is that we're advocating for democracy being treated as a tool, as a way of running society, 
rather than as an end goal and as a sign of virtue and a set of values that we need to follow. Yes, the rise of the West goes hand in hand with the increasing democratization over the past few hundred years. If you look at um, the West, Western Europe, for example, in the 12th century, it was a backwards place, scientifically way behind other parts of the world, way behind China, way behind the Arab world. And the West only started rising up with the Italian Renaissance and then with uh, French Enlightenment and uh, everything connected to that afterwards. And so in many ways, our sense of superiority, our global arrogance, when we started ruling the waves, goes hand in hand with a connecting that emotionally to the democratization process. The result of that is that we have no longer a clear picture in mind of what, first of all, made us successful as a society, what were the things about democracy that helped us, and instead we're equating democracy with the geopolitical superiority that we achieved over the past couple of hundred years. So in the 19th century, early 20th century, Europe ruled the world in many ways with its colonies. Um, then in the 20th century, late 20th century, the United States ruled the world with its um, hugely influential diplomatic and military might. And that was connected to societies that had democratized very, very clearly. And as a result, we no longer understand the process of what made us successful. We no longer look at what actually was practically valuable to us as a Western society and on the global stage. And instead, we just think that, hey, we're democratic. We are liberal, unlike some others. We are successful, unlike some others. Therefore, our success is automatically connected to that democracy. Therefore, we create a mythology about what it is to be democratic. This reminds me of um, the episode we recorded on development aid, where the condition for development aid is always democracy because democracy helped us develop, so it will help you develop. Um, exactly, which is exactly the problem with this kind of thinking, that there is something inherent, and that's why mythology is the right word for it. It's, it's, it's mythological. This idea that democracy is somehow automatically superior in its very essence rather than connecting it to actual practical outcomes because you can point and you should point at practical advantages that democracy has and that's a good thing and as a result it did help western europe in the 20th century it did help the united states in the 20th century it did help japan in the second half of 20th century no doubt about that but you should never fall in the trap of thinking that democracy itself is always going to be a superior governance form because there can be absolutely a democracy that works well politically but that oppresses minorities that uh, displays a blatant disregard of what we understand to be basic moral values that has um, high income inequality and really bad policy making while at the same time, there can be an authoritarian system that has very good policymaking, that has high levels of well-being and, and low levels of uh, economic inequality, and that protects minorities. In that case, surely that second version is way superior morally to the first version. And the fact that the first version is democratic is basically meaningless in that instance. 
And and so what is important for these, you know, goods that you've just described to be achieved? Like what elements of policymaking are important? I assume it's some form of controlling the leadership and well, I mean, guiding it is, is already, you know, a bit too democratic, but I think there's some form of controlling the leadership, right? That, you know, you hold them accountable for their actions. Yes, typically... Um one of the strong points of a well-functioning democracy would be that accountability of saying, you make mistakes, we're going to vote you out of office, and um, you cannot stay in power if you don't follow the will of the people. That is that is typically a way to hold leaders accountable, and that is not something that you would see in an imperial system or in a totalitarian system. Mm, uh, in theory, and very often in practice, emperors, kings dictators can introduce terrible policy with uh, which leads to a lot of human suffering and they will not face the consequences unlike that in the democracy however in the end surely the question is um, is policy making conducive to human well-being and as a society you make some choices about what the goals are that you have you have certain ambitions as a society those ambitions are typically related to economic well-being and protection of minorities and those kinds of things. And then you say, okay, is this leader at the moment doing that? If they're not, do we have a way to get rid of them? Um, in a democracy, often you do. In a totalitarian system, you don't. This is why there is a strong case to be made for democracy, but only within the context of that practical policymaking, not because going to vote in itself is somehow inherently superior than having a emperor or a king above you. Mm -hmm. It is this notion of seeing democracy as a tool, because I mean it's ultimately that tool, but it's not um, the use of the tool or even the end goal that is then so sacred. And this is what the the West sees as sacred. I mean, we see democracy as sacred. I've had this many times when in university, especially in the early years, you would even discuss the notion of democracy. And criticizing it does not go over well in the West. No, because it has become a sacred cow to us, right? It is something that we mistake practice for mythology. And we tell ourselves from a very young age that the act of voting, regardless of the practical outcomes, is somehow a hugely moral act. Um, for me to express my political opinions by choosing one party over another isn't just seen as a way for me to contribute to a well-functioning political system and a well-functioning governance system. It is something that is an inalienable right that we should protect at all costs. And then you create exactly this kind of mythology and you create this idea that it doesn't really matter whether the practical policymaking is conducive to human well-being. What matters is that we are being democratic. And as a result, if we see another state that is not democratic, but that is taking care of its people, we, st we still reject them. We still believe that there's something inherently evil about them, despite the well-being of those people actually being served really well by their own political non-democratic system. And examples of this would be China or Singapore. I think Singapore is the one I, I like to bring up the most because it is an, it's a one-party system, um, not a democracy, but a really nice country that a lot of Westerners uh, enjoy living in. 
And then China is the example we always bring up with regards to development, is that China has elevated 400 million people out of poverty in the last 40 years, something that they don't get enough credit for and something that they did without being a democracy. They hardly get any credit for it. And I would challenge anyone to deny the moral value in elevating four or five hundred million people out of extreme poverty to middle class levels of well-being. The moral outcome of that is not just about money. It is about being able to feed your children, being able to send your children to school, not being stressed out about whether you will survive in the next few months. The core, core moral values that we as humanity have always espoused are absolutely well served by elevating people into those middle-class standards of well-being. And that is something that China has achieved. And if you look at where democracies are going, where the United States is going and the United Kingdom and even continental Europe is moving towards, it is actually an increase in extreme poverty. It's an increase in people who don't know if they pay the bills, an increase in people needing food banks. Uh, the fact that we all go and vote surely is less important than the observation that more and more people in our societies are becoming poor, properly, desperately poor. Whereas in China, it's the, in the other direction. And in Singapore, it's very much almost non-existent, that extreme type of poverty. But there are also some very serious problems within China. There are. They, and every society has very significant serious problems. China clearly has a lot of internal issues that they have to account for and that from as from an outside perspective we might feel very uncomfortable with there's also a reason why i live in spain and not in china i have no plans to move to beijing anytime soon because i feel more comfortable uh, in the connection between my own moral values and the moral values as espoused by spanish or western european society than those in china however that is not really the issue that we should be dealing with what we should ask ourselves is any specific governance form, does it fulfill the overall policy objectives, the overall practical outcomes of the society at large? And in China, it is clearly overall doing it, despite issues that certainly from the outside look pretty dark. The same can be said about uh, Western Europe. Are these the practical outcomes of our democratic system still in line with Western European societies? ambitions, this, regardless of whether outsiders judge Western Europe or not. Do we believe that our political system is the right system to achieve the goals that we have? And I think a very provocative question here could be um, kind of tapping into a discussion that, you know, there's, is taking place currently in Western Europe in particular. Is our system well equipped enough to tackle the climate issue, for example? Uh, do we need maybe more authoritarian measures, not taking into account maybe the majority voice um, of society saying that we want to have a comfortable lifestyle? Do we need a more authoritarian approach like China saying that, okay, we're going to slash CO2 emissions by this year and we're going to do it in our way? That is very efficient, as we've pointed out, just with development. And that's a very interesting conversation to have. And I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, I can tell you that the democratic processes that we described about the late 20th century would have been more equipped to deal with the, the climate crisis 
than the ones that we have now. And then when people say, ah, but in the 20th century, people did, did very little about the environment. Yes, that's because the consequences weren't that obvious yet. Scientists were already saying it. The Club of Rome said it since 1975. But the consequences in the 21st century are much more obvious. And as a result, uh, there is much more urgency behind it. That's how humanity works. The current system is not particularly good at dealing with climate change. Why not? Because it feels as if governments, if they deal with climate change, they're punishing the population. And populations don't like to be punished. They don't like the complex picture of, hey, we all have to sacrifice something to save the planet and save our children. That is something that is too abstract for us. We care about how high are our taxes next year and um, am I allowed to fly on on an airplane to Portugal for my holidays. And if the government says that I'm not allowed to do that, then I feel that the government is not protecting my interest. This is exactly the reason why perfect democracy is such a terrible, terrible idea. You do not want a perfect democracy. You want a kind of mix between elite authoritarianism and still accountability from the masses and broad ambitions identified by the masses that then those elites have to carry out. Because these unpopular decisions would obviously increase populism, especially in the current form of democracy we have. Which is exactly what you see, certainly right-wing populism. I mean, here in Spain, you've got Podemos, which is very much uh, on the other side when it comes to the, the climate debate, of course. But right-wing populists get a lot of votes by essentially saying that the establishment is exaggerating climate change, is exaggerating environmental decay, that they are using this to control the population, but that there is no real threat on the horizon. And that feels right for a lot of people who haven't done their homework, who haven't read the science, because the science is completely clear about it. There, there is no scientific doubt about the dangers we're facing in the 21st century. But if you don't do your homework, if you don't actually properly read up on it, and if you don't trust the scientific elites, then you're going to feel very comfortable with a populist leader who says, oh, there is no climate change. This is just the establishment trying to mess with you. Please vote for me and I will make sure that you can do whatever you like with your CO2 emissions. I will make sure that we won't tax uh, the farmers, that I will make sure that we won't limit our own economic behavior because you should be free to make your own choices because you are a reasonable human being. And a lot of the masses respond well to that. They think, exactly, I can make my own choices. I don't want that establishment, those elites, to, to do that for me. But as a result, long-time governance and policymaking goes down the drain. I mean, we, we also see this on the other side of the spectrum. Uh, no, it's not only the right wing, but I mean, the example uh, of Germany phasing out of nuclear energy was a response to a huge popular, uh, you know, the masses were in the streets outcry to response of the uh, catastrophe in, Fu in Fukushima in, in 2011, where afterwards, you know, politicians responded to this, to this fear of nuclear energy, ignoring the expert view saying that if you want to decarbonize society and, you know, if you want to lower CO2 levels, then nuclear is, is one of the better options out there. You know, it can also go into the other extreme, uh, turning things around. The, the nuclear debate, maybe that's almost something for another episode, but it's a very good example of the how bubbles work, right? We, partially because conflating um, nuclear weapons with nuclear energy, partially because of some horrible events, uh, not just 
in 2011, but also Chernobyl, obviously, which is very traumatic to people, which is incredibly scary uh, and, and did cause a lot of damage. We overemphasize this, this emotional dislike for nuclear energy, whereas if you look at the actual facts and you were to actually follow the people who know what they're talking about, the scientists, the experts, the engineers, they're all saying that nuclear energy is way less destructive, is way less dangerous than all the um, other types of energy, coal mining and whatever else, that is currently undermining our planet's well-being. However, coal mining doesn't lead to a big nuclear explosion like Chernobyl, and as a result, we don't have that automatic antagonism towards it that we have with nuclear energy, right? It's, it's one of those very good examples where you cannot let your own intuitive feelings um, dictate policymaking. And that's exactly why you need to trust scientific in, and intellectual elites. But that trust is completely gone in the 21st century. And another one of these problems with democracy is that it leads to a more aggressive foreign policy. Yeah, this is a very clear issue. It, there can't be any doubt. Look at the last 70 years. Which are the countries that have created, have started more wars, that have caused more civilian casualties, more destruction? It's by far the democratic nations of this planet. The United States, the United Kingdom, Israel, uh, the Netherlands. Those are the countries that have been militarily by far most aggressive on the world stage. I know that we're all obsessed about with respect to Ukraine and Russia right now. And Russia has been relatively aggressive. But for example, a country like China um, has not invaded any country lately. It has not used its military for foreign policy. The West, the democratic West has. And this is this wasn't just to prevent genocide. In fact, the one big genocide in modern times that we can point out, the Rwanda genocide, which was a proper horrible, horrific genocide where a million people were killed overnight, did not lead to any military reaction by the West. What did lead to military reactions? Our own interest. Um, the uh, war on terror, uh, the Vietnam War, those issues that have nothing to do with basic human morality and everything to do with just protecting our global strategies and our geopolitical interests that um, we identify. And the result is that despite the mythology that there's something peaceful about democracy, and ask anyone, ask anyone in the Netherlands or in Spain, go in Madrid or Berlin, ask them, is your country a a source for good and peace in the world, they will answer yes, it is. Sometimes we make mistakes, surely, but we are a democratic, liberal, peaceful nation that just want everyone, wants everyone to get along. But the facts don't bear that out. The facts show that these countries are the ones that are causing war, that are the ones that are causing destruction, despite any mythology about uh, how, how morally good democracy might be. And this has to be embodied by the democratic peace theory, you know? I mean, the theory that's misunderstood, and well, or was misunderstood at the beginning as democracies are more peaceful, and then it already had to be specified, saying that, well, no, democracies don't go to war with each other. Um, however, completely undermining the point that you just raised is that, you know, all these other very destructive wars were in fact started by democracies. But it seems like that in our mind, any of these wars are kind of seen as mistakes 
You know, I think Afghanistan is a great example here. Ah, Afghanistan was a bit of a mistake, you know, wasn't planned well. Iraq as well. Um, but, you know, we, we, don't, we didn't start those wars. It was, you know, it was someone else or it was a mistake. Absolutely right. Uh, this whole democratic peace theory mythology comes from people like Immanuel Kant, uh, the perpetual peace. And this was at a time when, again, the West was both internally democratizing and was ruling the waves, right? Was was dominating global affairs. And as a result, it seemed that there was something inherently, inalienably positive and good about this democratic force. And as a result, we desperately started creating all these myths, all these fairy tales about how democracy is inherently different from everyone else. And democratic peace theory is very clear in that sense. The reality is that, once again, you have to look at practical outcomes. Why do democracies much more easily go to war than an authoritarian system? And they do. So for I know that Vladimir Putin, as a dictator, or as at least a very authoritarian regime in the Kremlin, has invaded Ukraine. But why does that not happen very often? Is because those authoritarian elites actually have much more to lose from that war. The risks are much higher. Look at what had happened to Saddam Hussein invading Kuwait. It essentially was the beginning of the end for his rule and his life. Uh, if a democratic leader goes to war, the worst punishment that can happen is that they lose the next elections. And usually they don't even lose the next elections. Tony Blair and George W. Bush, the two main promoters of uh, the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan, both were re-elected after invading those countries. But even if George W. Bush had lost the elections in uh, 2004, no biggie. He just goes into the private sector and earns millions there. Earns millions there. He, his family will not be threatened by those foreign policy mistakes, unlike the families of an authoritarian regime. So, again, this is not about an argument that authoritarian regimes are inherently better than democracies. It is just that we have to burst through the mythology that democracies are inherently a force for good. It all depends on the practical outcomes. And we can clearly criticize democracies for practically being way more aggressive in foreign policy than authoritarian regimes. But despite this, you know, more aggressive foreign policy, and you could simply argue that it comes with power, you know, that... <laughs> Uh, more power leads to leads to more aggressive wars. Isn't there something inherently better about democracy if you believe in inalienable rights? That democracy is a right, and to vote is a right, and that the human rights that the West has defined are inalienable. That is the best and not a particularly good <laughs> um, argument in favor of democracies, right? And this comes from this long line that that started. With uh, the human rights debate that we did an episode about, Thomas Aquinas, and then led into the French Enlightenment and led into uh, the whole thinking uh, at the basis of the United States Constitution that every human being is born with these rights. This, and that as a result, if you live in a society where there's an authoritarian figure, a Hobbesian Leviathan, if you like, that can just impose their will on that individual that can that can break those inalienable rights then that is inherently an inferior system to a democracy where that authority cannot do such a thing 
The problem, of course, is that unless you're a moral absolutist, there, that idea of inalienable rights is a choice society makes. It is not written in the sky. Um, the inalienable rights that exist are there because we want them to be there for an individual in our society. They're a legitimate choice we can make. The only way to argue that they are a divine institution is if uh, you actually believe in the absolute from your religion, for example, but then you have to navigate a landscape where there are lots of different religions with all kinds of different moralities, right? We don't have one single religion in our world today, obviously, and as a result, to appeal to that religion as an objective source for inalienable rights for that morality is... I would say, a very difficult position to take. So then we, we are back to, we as a society can decide that every citizen has certain rights and we can call them inalienable. But that is a choice that our society makes. And then the question is, does our society actually have a governance system that defends those chosen rights? That's, that's all. And Chinese society, for example, would emphasize very much economic rights and, says, and say, we want every... Chinese citizen to be able to enjoy middle-class standards of living. We don't really care about the inalienable rights when it comes to freedom of speech or freedom of religion or something like that. That is not as important to us. And that is a legitimate choice to make for the Chinese, just like it's a legitimate choice for Western Europe or the United States to do something else. And then the question becomes, is the political system conducive to defending those choices? See, all of this comes back to to the original statement is whether you believe in democracy as a mythology, you know, as this divine thing that is the end goal, or whether you believe in it as a tool. Um, and I would say that this seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on the first part of our two parts um, on democracy. Today we talked about the facts and the bubble, and next week we will be talking about the damages that this bubble causes and the future of democracy. If you have any questions, comments, or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side. Balder, which closing quote did you pick for us today? I actually chose two contrasting quotes from that great beast of democratic mythology, if you like, Winston Churchill, who first of all said... It has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. End quote. And then the second quote, very much going the, in the other direction. The best argument against democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter. Mm -hmm.